Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 111, Nature's Pharmacy. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara on the rohe of Mueupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we had a long discussion on Māori religion, the mythology, the pantheon, and how it operated in practice. Today, we're going to follow on from that with the closely connected rongnoa Māori, that is, medicine. We talked a little about this in episode 108, where Elston Best was rather disparaging of Māori medical capabilities, to the point where he said that Māori had no herbal remedies, or that Māori had no medicinal practices other than exorcism. At the time, I didn't have the confidence in my research to say whether this was entirely true, though I did think it was a bit dubious. Well, I can tell you with a fair amount of confidence now that Best was talking out of his ass. Māori did have herbal remedies, though in some instances not in the same way that Europeans understood them. And although there was a heavy spiritual element to rongnoa, it would be unfair to say that the only medicinal practice they had was exorcism. In saying that, rongnoa Māori is hard to separate from spirituality, unlike contemporary Western medicine where there is a clear distinct line made between religion and science. I think it would be fair to say that, generally speaking, the Western world doesn't welcome religion in the hospital, other than a few exceptional circumstances, almost all of which involve the oncoming death of the patient. Rognoa Māori, on the other hand, has religion and spirituality deeply ingrained, right from diagnosis, and this aspect of medicine revolves around the wairua, in this case called tetaha wairua, which literally translates to, quote, the spiritual side or dimension, end quote. And although I've just said that this is religious, that isn't necessarily what it was, at least not in the sense of what Western cultures might think. In Te Ao Māori, the spiritual health of a person is intrinsically linked to their physical health, so healing one is not really done without healing the other. Part of spiritual health is being connected to your whakapapa, one of which is tāne, and by extension, the forests, as well as other aspects of the natural world. So to be healthy and in balance is also to be connected to the world around you. This can be applied to a wider level, one example given is if a lake is contaminated with sewage and can't support fish, then it is in ill health, which may result in the physical health of the hapu nearby also declining. 
Additionally, it may also mean that the hapu are unable to provide for manuhiri as they would have in the past, such as providing feasts and the like, which results in whakama, shame, which is their spiritual health declining. This idea is also extended to social connections and mental health, all of which can affect spiritual and physical health depending on the circumstances. If you're like me and were brought up in the New Zealand school system, you may have had this presented as the idea of the four walls of a house, with each wall representing your mental, physical, spiritual and emotional health each one helping to hold up the whole house, which is you. If one wall falls down or is fragile, the other three have to do more work to keep the house standing, meaning it is harder to maintain the house and the other walls become more susceptible to crumbling. In a nutshell, that concept is what Rongloa Māori is. To explain it a slightly different way, the focus of Rongloa Māori wasn't the sickness itself, but rather the person who is sick. It's perhaps a subtle difference, but the idea is to be more holistic in the approach to healing. This meant that those tohunga who were connected deeply to the Atua weren't just priests. They were doctors, nurses, counsellors and therapists all rolled into one called Tohonga Nana Tupapaku. They were taught in the Whare Wānanga, and Rongloa Māori was considered to be one of the things that Tāne brought back in the Kite of Knowledge. As such, any breaking of tapu in relation to this knowledge, such as sharing it with outsiders, was an affront to him. And in fact, Tāne was also the atua who presided over the medicinal plants from the forest, so one of his major domains was medicine and healing. In the Farewananga, aspiring tohunga would learn the various karakia used in healing, the plants that go with them, how to prepare and apply them, as well as what symptoms or ailments these would be used for. If you've listened to the previous episodes, you might guess that women didn't tend to be healers like this, as they were noa and weren't admitted to the farewananga. As we talked about in previous episodes, the first step of figuring out how to cure someone was to figure out what the cause of the disease was, which in te ao Māori is what tapu they broke or which atua they pissed off. This would involve matakite, divination, and once the source of the issue was discovered, the tohunga could prescribe treatment. This treatment would chiefly involve karakia. This was seen as the thing that was actually doing the work of healing. Plants, massage, stretching and other physical remedies would likely have been done as well, but these were seen as secondary to the karakia. They just amplified the work that the words were doing. Remember, in te ao Māori, words have innate power, especially when said with intention by someone with great mana, which a tohunga always was. Tohunga were required to maintain a certain level of mana to allow their karakia to be able to work. 
Additionally, if karakia weren't delivered correctly, such as adding or removing a word or messing up the pacing, then this could render the karakia useless in that instance. All of this was important with the idea that the Atua was the one doing the healing through the karakia, and the tohonga was just the vessel or the connector between the Atua and the patient. We have talked a lot about karakia before though, so I won't rehash all of that here. What I would rather focus on is the more physical aspect. What plants they were using, what ailments were those plants used for? And generally, if you were alive in, say, 17th century Aotearoa and injured yourself or got sick, what kind of treatments would you potentially see being prescribed? So let's start with some different ailments. Well, by and large, Māori were treating most of the same kind of stuff we get today. They would do some healing with cuts, bruises, broken bones, some healing of aches and pains of joints, teeth or throat, healing bowel issues from having not enough movement or having too much movement, as well as some healing of colds, coughs, STDs and even leprosy and tuberculosis. Diseases like influenza, measles and that sort of thing didn't arrive until after Europeans came over. And much like other indigenous peoples around the world, Māori had no natural defence against them, meaning they contracted them easily and a lot of people died. Overall, Europeans recorded that Māori didn't seem to have many really bad diseases, and serious illness didn't seem to be widespread, possibly since Māori weren't as urbanised as the increasingly city-dwelling Europeans. What we also see once Europeans turn up is that Māori women were heavily afflicted with introduced diseases, as the whalers and sealers coming initially were pretty much always men, and so women that had sex with them contracted these diseases more often. As with most aspects of pre-European Māori life, Rongnoa wasn't just rote learning of plants and symptoms. There was a lot of tikanga to observe and tapu to not break, such as early morning generally being favoured to gather plants. Acknowledging the modi, the life force of the plant being harvested from, was common to show respect to the plant and to harvest from it in a way that would ensure it would continue to live and allow others to harvest from it later. You wouldn't take more leaves than the plant could do without, or you wouldn't take more than you need. Taking less and making sure the plant will survive your harvest was key to its survival long term, and allow you and others to take from it in the future. Plants can grow and replenish themselves. To take too much and then cause it to die is not very helpful and not very forward thinking. Of course, there was a lot of regional variation in how or when plants were harvested. 
But what we also find is that some of the same plants can have very different properties depending on where in the country they are gathered from. For Tohunga, having intimate knowledge of the forest was key. Knowing how each plant grew, or how they defended themselves, would help in knowing what they could be used for. Such as how Europeans later figured out how fungi defend themselves against bacteria, which in turn we can use as medicine, such as penicillin. Knowledge of what plants are good for what ailment, and how to use or prepare them, was determined over years, or even generations, of observation. This knowledge would be passed down by two primary methods, both facilitated by the whare wānanga. One was by sitting down in the whare itself, and basically being taught in a class. A high-ranked tohunga would possibly stand up in front of the apprentices and talk to them about the theory of healing. What karakia to use for what ailment, how to say them, and try to get them to remember the lines because they won't be able to consult a notebook later. They may also cover the various plants, how to prepare them, and which karakia to pair them with. But... A lot of the teaching on plants came from the other method. Just being out in the bush, walking with the tohunga, and them pointing out plants, showing how to identify them and how to harvest them in a safe and respectful way. In saying that, the specifics of how Māori applied medicines, or how they figured out what worked and what didn't, isn't really known, since they were apprehensive to share that information with people like Best. However, what I find interesting about this is that this form of teaching, a combination of lecturing and outdoor practical work, sounds very similar to my Western scientific university education. In terms of actual remedies to cure ailments, a tohunga had a lot of methods and plants at his disposal. In particular, there were various rituals that would help in recovery. Often these involved water, either sprinkled or poured on a person, or just the ritual occurring in a river. Usually plants were placed on the patient or mixed in some way during these ceremonies. Peter Buck suggests that the bigger, less obvious ailments were the ones treated mostly with ritual or ceremony, and that simple and plain-to-see issues were treated in a more quote-unquote rational manner such as warts having leaves applied after cooking them, or boils were cut open and the core squeezed out with the thumbs. Bloodletting was occasionally practised for alleviating pains, like headaches. If the person was drowning, they would be held by the heels over a fire to get them to inhale the smoke. The water was then able to run out of the body, and the sneezing from the smoke would wake them up. If you were lucky enough to live in one of the more geothermally active areas in Aotearoa, 
hot water baths from the natural vents could be used to treat injuries or soreness in the joints or muscles. Cook and Polak both recorded that steam baths were a common way to fix ailments as well. This could be done by heating stones, placing some plants on them, and then a whakari on top of that. The patient would then squat over the mat as the steam rose from the cooking vegetation. One interesting ailment is goiter, the swelling of the thyroid gland in the neck due to iodine deficiency. In most regions, this disease was taken as a matter of course. It kind of happened all the time, and there wasn't really a way to permanently fix it. But it could be eased by rubbing morning urine on the area with the left hand. Part of what makes this a little interesting is that later the European population would have the same problem, since the root of the problem was New Zealand's soil, specifically that it doesn't have much iodine in it, meaning that the plants didn't either. So people just weren't getting very much iodine in their diet. And it wouldn't be until 1924 that table salt was required to be iodized to help avoid this issue, to which it still is to this day. One thing that does come up a fair amount if you look into Rongnoa Māori is discussions around what kind of medicines Māori used, or whether they used them at all if you look at Elston Best's work. In fact, he took it a step further and said the art of medicine was learned from Pākehā, as it would, quote, lessen the power of the priests, end quote. He says that when Māori learned about the science of medicine, they took to it very quickly and, quote, swallowed any nostrum they could procure, be it ever so vile, end quote. These views have subsequently been refuted by modern scholars. Māori did use some medicines, but it seems that it may have been limited to external remedies. It's possible that internal remedies, like drinking water infused with leaves or bark, may have only occurred when Europeans arrived, though there is evidence to suggest that they did have some medicines that were consumed for abnormal bowel movements. So the jury's still slightly out on that one. We also find that some Māori called European missionaries tohunga, as they fulfilled a similar role in European society that tohunga did in Aotearoa. This was only further reinforced when they brought with them various medicines and used them on the population, often with great effect, which in turn helped to convert them to Christianity. Due to the conversion of many people who would have been inducted into the Farewananga, a lot of the knowledge on medicine and other important topics was lost with the death of quote-unquote old-time Tohunga. These converts wanted to blend the two schools of thought together, keeping the ideas of tapu but basing their healing and attitude towards medicine on the Bible. This was made a bit harder as missionaries had begun to recontextualize Māori kupu, 
words. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say they reduced them to a singular function. Such as tapu, meaning holy, atua, meaning god, karakia into prayer, and so on. Which is not exactly incorrect, but these words have far wider meanings and understandings than what Europeans ascribed to them. We have already talked about how Atua could mean anything from Tane Mahuta to a dead ancestor. In a lot of ways, though, not a huge amount changed. In some aspects, only the god being referred to changed that of Christ instead of the Big Six. Right, okay, so listen up. Before we get into talking about some specific plants and what they were used for, I do need to give a small warning. Or rather, it's actually quite a big warning. I really need to make this abundantly clear. The treatments I'm about to describe were used by Māori to treat ailments for hundreds of years. This does not mean they are safe to use now. Some plants contain poisons, or even carcinogens, that's cancer-causing chemicals, that they weren't aware of. But we do know that they are in these plants now. At least one of the plants I'm about to talk about is not safe to put in your mouth. Additionally, do not eat any plants that you can't 100% without a shadow of a doubt identify correctly. Some plants can look like other plants, sometimes on purpose, as we will soon discuss. And some of these lookalikes are dangerous to your health. Just be sensible, you know? Don't eat something if you don't know what it is. If you have an injury or a disease, see a doctor, go to the hospital. And just to really lay this out in case a lawyer gets involved, I will not be held responsible if you, based on the following information, go out, eat something, and then get injured. Cool? Cool. So with that out of the way, let's talk about some interesting plants and their uses. Kawakawa leaves look very similar to that of kava, a sedative that is used throughout the Pacific, even today, and in fact it is distantly related to it. Although kawakawa doesn't have the same properties, it does have a lot of other uses. The leaves and roots could be boiled to make a tonic that was used as an aphrodisiac and a treatment for gonorrhea, worms, and issues with the urinary organs. Kawakawa leaves could be added to a bath to help soothe skin conditions, and wounds could be wrapped in them, possibly acting as an antiseptic. The leaves could also be chewed to receive a mild numbing effect and was useful to help ease the pains of toothaches or sore throats, with the leaves tasting kinda peppery and bitter. The active chemical that is probably doing most of this work is myristicin, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, but it has anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial and insecticide properties. 
Interestingly, this is also the psychoactive chemical in nutmeg. And apparently, some people have tried to smoke kawakawa leaves to get high. But they didn't have much success other than feeling just actually a bit numb. To protect the kumara crop from caterpillars, Māori would burn kawakawa branches in rows between the plants to help ward off insects that might eat it. Interestingly, there is one bug that this didn't work for. The kawakawa looper moth, Cleora scriptaria, who has adapted to be resistant to the insecticide properties, and in fact prefers to eat kawakawa. This species are the ones leaving the holes in the leaves of kawakawa that you often see. Māori believe that the ones with the most holes are the ones with the most medicine, so they are the ones to choose for your remedies which may have a western scientific basis, in that the eating of the leaves by the moth may have caused them to change their chemical composition as a defence mechanism, meaning an increased concentration of the active chemical myristicin. Later, when Europeans arrived, they would brew kawakawa into tea, beer, and nowadays you can actually even find it in gin. Shout out to the Bond Store Distillery on the Kapiti Coast for their Kawakawa Gin, which is my absolute favourite. I am not sponsored by them, just really like their gin. The leaves were also used as kinaki and served with mutton bird. Apart from the leaves, Kawakawa has an orange fruit which is quite tasty and was used as a diuretic. Horopito is called the pepper tree in English due to the strong peppery taste that you get when you chew the leaves. Again, this would be used for sore throats and teeth as it had a mild numbing effect. Mothers would rub the leaves over their breast to help wean their children off milk since they would be put off by the mild spiciness. Hot baths infused with leaves and bark of horopito were used to treat a variety of external body conditions and even parasites. Europeans dubbed it Bushman's Painkiller on account of, well, its pain-killing properties. Europeans also brewed it into a tea to help relieve stomach aches, headaches, fever or diarrhoea. Leaves could be placed on cuts to help heal them too, though sometimes this would impart a slight blue tinge to the skin, as the underside of the leaf has a blue hue. The chemical responsible for the spicy flavour is polygodial, which has antifungal, anti-inflammatory, antibacterial and anti-allergic properties. It has also been found to be effective at treating yeast infections, and is apparently sold in creams worldwide for that purpose. Funnily enough, deer hate the taste, so horopito has become quite dominant in some areas, since the deer consume everything else except it. Horopito also has some insect repellent properties. This is due to the glands filled with polygodial. 
When an insect nibbles on the leaf, it may pop a gland, releasing the compound and killing the insect. But this also damages the leaf itself, leaving the characteristic red patches. This in turn serves as a warning signal to other insects. The more red the leaves, the more polygodial is in them, and the more dangerous they are. What's really cool is that this seems to have become the language of the forest, with other plants who don't contain polygodial mimicking the same blotchy red leaf pattern to stop insects from nibbling them. Scientists think this is Batesian mimicry, where a harmless species mimics the appearance of a harmful species, which is very rare in the plant world. Horopito is also finding a lot of traction in the food world as an interesting substitute for pepper, as well as being in tea and, again, gin. Shout out to number 8 distillery based in Dunedin who make a very good Horopito gin that I like very much. Again, not sponsored. Corfi is another plant that has a lot of different uses, with the bark being the part used the most. Bark would always be harvested from the sunniest side of the tree, before being soaked in water that could be used to treat skin disease, dandruff, cuts, bruises, sprains and general aches, among other things. People who broke bones may sit in water infused with corfi, called Y-corfi, to help the bones heal faster. Or travellers with tender feet could soak in the infused water to help toughen them, which gave the skin a slight yellow tinge. The water could also be drunk to help relieve constipation, which one source said, quote, the effects of which were rather dramatic, end quote. Despite all of this, it is not recommended to ingest corfi or anything infused with it. It is poisonous. Apparently, some people have become sick just from eating with cutlery made of the wood, or in other cases, eating kedidu who ate the leaves, and the poison got into the meat, which was said to have smelled quite funky. One story I found was about a cooper in Bluff, who made beer from tea coca roots. While he was out and about away from his home, some whalers came along and, feeling a bit rowdy, smashed his stuff and stole his booze, retreating back onto their ship. The barrel maker was naturally very annoyed, but formulated a plan. He waited until he spotted the ship returning to port, boiling some corfi leaves and flowers into a home brew. He then packed himself up to leave, taking his valuables and leaving some drinking cups out on the table with this brew. Like clockwork, the whalers came along, broke into the shop, and had a few drinks. When the officers on the ship noticed their men failed to return on time, they went to go look for them, and found the men, quote, in a state of violent purging. 
for 12 hours straight, they had been erupting from both ends. End quote. Manuka is interesting as it is a more recent arrival to Aotearoa, coming here a few million years ago, having blown over from Australia. As such, it has some interesting adaptations to fire that other species in New Zealand don't have due to the relative rarity of fire in the Kiwi bush, at least prior to human arrival. Manuka contains oils that help fire burn hotter, and it has a seed dispersal system where capsules of seeds pop open and spread across the ground when they heat up or are exposed to smoke. As such, when Māori were using fire to clear land, Manuka and its cousin Kanuka spread across the land like, well, wildfire. This created a bit of a feedback loop, where the manuka created bigger, hotter, and more frequent forest fires, which spread them around more, which made the fires bigger, which made more manuka, and so on. Meaning, plants that did well in an environment of semi-regular forest fires were encouraged, which changed Aotearoa's landscape fairly dramatically. And in fact, manuka had a lot of uses that weren't just medicine, such as the construction of whare or wooden palisades, making small personal items like combs, or for tools like hoe, ko, hinaki, and even taiaha. In terms of rongoa, the leaves would be put in water and drank to reduce fever or treat stomach and urinary issues. The bark was also infused into water to use as a sedative or mouthwash, whereas seeds were chewed to treat diarrhoea. The sap or gum that seeped from the branches was eaten to help cure coughs or as a moisturiser for burns. Later, Europeans, or maybe at this point it's more accurate to say the English, would make tea from the leaves, and it was common for sealers and whalers to drink almost nothing else on their long expeditions. Obviously, the thing manuka is most famous for nowadays is honey. Pukatea is a swampy tree that has some interesting adaptations to living in that environment such as growing pneumatophores, which are essentially biological snorkels that allow submerged roots to breathe. The bark of the pukatea was a strong painkiller, being infused with water and rubbing it on sores, ulcers, eczema and other skin conditions, which would almost instantly numb the area and relieve the pain. It could also be drunk to help cure STDs and ulcers in the mouth. Alternately, the bark could be chewed for the same effect. The chemical that does this is pucatine, which again, I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly. But that is an alkaloid that has similar properties to morphine, though apparently with none of the downsides. This has led scientists to look more into its potential application in Western medicine, possibly around Parkinson's disease, hypertension, and TB. 
The morphine-like qualities has also led people to try and get high off of it, smoking, drinking, or otherwise trying to consume the bark. So far, no one has reported it being successful other than getting a numb mouth or throat. Apparently, there was some suggestions that Pukatine causes convulsions in rabbits, and that it was poisonous to sheep and rats. So there could be potential applications in native conservation. The wood was also used by Māori for small items, like bowls, hallware, and even figureheads for waka. However, it became waterlogged quite easily, so it wasn't good for larger projects. Another interesting use is that when the trees age, they often leave a hollow in the middle of the trunk, with Māori sometimes placing the bodies of dead relatives in these hollows, possibly if there wasn't a cave nearby for the purpose. Sometimes getting people into the tree would require lifting them up to 10 to 20 metres off the ground. Finally, kumaraho is a tree that doesn't really look like much, with dull green leaves and small clusters of little yellow flowers. But it's a hardy plant that can survive in lots of different environments, particularly barren areas, leading Europeans to call it poverty weed. It is also called gum digger's soap, since it was quite prominent in the former Cody forests where the gum diggers were looking for Cody gum. What they found was that if you take the flowers, add a little water, and rub them in your hands, you get a nice soapy lather. Which was pretty great when you're in the middle of nowhere, far away from a shower. Apparently it was good not just for general dirt and grime, but also getting rid of the Cody resin that would stick to them very strongly. This property is from the flowers containing compounds called saponins, which are found in some detergents today. The leaves could also be infused with water to cure chesty coughs, colds, heartburns and asthma, among other things. This tonic could also be applied to cuts to help heal them. By now, you are probably seeing a trend with all of these plants, and I couldn't believe this when I read it for the first time either. But, yes, the English, in their infinite quest for hot leaf juice, did turn the literal soap plant into tea. Though, as you can probably guess, it's actually not very good. It's quite bitter and usually needs a sweetener. Next time will be our end-of-topic dramatic retelling, possibly something that fits with our last episode on creatures of Māori folklore. After that, we will be delving into our final pre-European topic, the House of Tūmatoinga, War. If you want to send me feedback, or ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A, 
R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the Te Reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haeritu watu, hokitu mai. See you next time. Hello, welcome to the space after the outro. I normally don't do these sorts of things, but I've literally just finished recording the episode and have just noticed this, and I really want to share it because it is not something I planned and is a great coincidence. The episode you've just listened to is obviously all about Māori medicine and healing and medical stuff and doctors and all that sort of thing. The number of this episode, some of you may have already picked up, at least if you're in New Zealand, is episode 111. Or episode 111. That, for those who don't know, is the New Zealand emergency number. Like 000 or 911. Ours is 111. Somehow... I managed to make the medical episode number 111. Fucking let's go!